And the most important thing to remember, this was true for me at least, kids don't go to school saying, gee, how can I fuck up today? Forgive them. They're children. Forgive yourself. You're human. Be compassionate all the way around because that's what's going to get you through. Yeah, so that was my dad. And my dad just retired after 32 years in public education, where he spent 10 years as a teacher, 15 years as an administrator, vice principal, and the remaining years doing curriculum development and personnel development, developing teachers. And so we took advantage of my dad being in town visiting for a few days, jump on the podcast, uh, and and spend the first half really having fun, a little bit of background, some personal stories, uh, a snapshot into my upbringing. And then halfway through, we turn up the heat and we leverage my dad's 30 32 years of experience to talking about all the hot topics of education uh, that I really think you'll enjoy. And it was cut short. He had to catch a flight out. Um, But I hope you enjoy part one uh, of a very exciting conversation that shows you a little bit about me and a little bit about the state of education. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Thank you for joining First Floor Conversations, where the view at the top is only as good as the foundation which preserves it. My name is Jeremy Francesi, your host. Uh, Today, we have a very special guest, 30 plus years in education, uh, and somebody I'm very, very fond of. It's also my dad. We're going to have some fun, so we'll we'll dive right in. Welcome, Mr. Mr. Francesi, Jim Jimbo. What, uh, What nicknames did you have when you grew up? Um... The biggest nickname I had when I was in college, I got named Frenchie. How? Frenchie? Oh, like Franchese? Yeah. That's kind of cool. I kind of like that. Yeah. Frenchie? Who gave you that nickname? Um, a whole bunch of guys that I hung with and partied with. They, they, you know, they all had different nicknames. And, Frenchie. Uh, I had a, my best friend was a guy named Mark. We all called him Crammy. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a guy named um, uh, Paul... Something I don't remember his last name. We called him Louie or Lugie. Thank you. Uh, Frenchy. Yeah. I kind of like that actually. Yeah, it worked. You know, it's, all, it's also like a little bit creative. Like I feel like a lot of nicknames are super lazy. Like you don't hate them because anybody that gives you a nickname is kind of endearing, but it's like, all right, like that's super generic. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, part of it, I think, at some point, um, I don't know how we would have gotten into the conversation, but. The last name Franchese translated means the Frenchman. Yeah. Indicating that somebody way a long time ago that I'm related to moved from Italy to France. And I, I'm pretty sure I told that story. And, you know, they kind of ran with it. Right. They clicked. No, I like that. I like that a lot. <laughs> Here, for, uh, for the folks, obviously, I kind of know you well. But uh, set, this, set this, yeah, right? It's like from, from what we know, that's what happens. You graduate college and all of a sudden you're like, oh, this is what it's going to be like. <laughs> um, set the stage on where you're from, little family, and then career-wise, and then we'll just screw around and have some fun. Okay. Um, I was born in Brooklyn. Uh, I was the fourth kid in the family. Um, I was the unexpected bonus. I was one of a twi- pair of twins, and um, I was the one who came second. My twin sister was kind enough to remind me that she was the elder, and, and you try to use that to lord it over me for most of my life, <laughs> but I didn't really pay a whole lot of attention to that. Right. Um, my father uh, was a very intelligent man. Um, who, like the son of a lot of immigrants in Brooklyn, never made it out of high school. My grandfather was a, I don't even remember, I'm not even sure I ever knew actually, now that I think about it, I don't know what he did for a living. But whatever it was, he had to stop pretty early on because he had major problems with his stomach and intestines and apparently had uh, repeated surgeries and couldn't work. Um, My father's family was pretty big. There were six or seven siblings and uh, all were male except for my aunt, who was a holy terror and raised the family along with my grandmother. Right. Um, she was one of these ladies who was really sweet in the sense that she'd give you the shirt off her back without a second thought. 
and you never get to forget it. That's so Ever. funny. That's so, <laughs> so Italian. Yeah, it was, <laughs> so Italian. It was very funny. Um, one, of, one of the funniest stories about her, mm-hmm. um, when my brother died, uh, of course, everybody showed up for the funeral, and my aunt was there, and here I am uh, at some point in the near future getting ready to marry this cute little Jewish girl I met, and she's in the kitchen trying to help my aunt get deli platters ready for all the people coming back from the funeral to the family house and she's trying to roll ham and as you can imagine that wasn't something she had a tremendous amount of experience with and my aunt was just really irritable and snapped at her and your mom who generally was pretty polite and respectful of adults Um, you know, she does have an edge and she was irritated with sort of the the stupidity of the, of the nasty attack and looked at her and said, well, you know, in my Jewish household, we didn't do a lot of ham rolling. (laughs) Of course she did. (laughs) Dude, I'll never forget like the, one of the most classic, like, like Jewish mother jokes she pulled was like, I came off the baseball field I want to say this was like high school, maybe even like late middle school. I like came up, no, it was soccer. I came off the soccer field and like, I don't know if I like pulled something or, you know, if Wells is listening, he's just saying I'm being a bitch. But like, I, uh, I, I, something in my, in, in my leg, my calf, my hand, whatever. And my mom, and my mom jokingly was like, well, it couldn't have been your hamstring because you only have one of them. Or she pulled one of those jokes, like yeah. being Jewish, you couldn't have a hamstring. And I was like, mom, yeah. how long you been sitting on that one? <laughs> But at the same time, it was like, shit, that was good, though. And I was yeah. like, ah. Yeah, she's quick. You, you know? She's witty. She's, she's uh, witty. She's for, definitely for quick. For 4'11". Uh, but so Brooklyn born and raised, so big Brooklyn side of the family. Brooklyn born and raised. My, my father. Um, you he, worked a, in the subway? Well, what happened? Like everybody in New York at some point worked in the subway. Well, a lot of people did it. You know, like I said, my dad was very intelligent, but he couldn't do his education. If you ever see those old-timey photographs of some guy pushing a cart selling fruit in Brooklyn, that was my father. Oh, so that's where we got the salesmanship from. Not Shout out, Grandpa. Yeah, I mean, he, he, that's what he did to help support the family. Do you know what fruit he sold? I think he sold a collection of fruit, whatever was available. I, I just find that part of the game so interesting because now you go anywhere, get everything. It's the question of, is it, it's the quality that's the question or it's the price that's the question, like Whole Foods versus Walmart, Trader, like, like, but it's Back not. Back then, it's what's in, se- what's in season. Right. So like, if you're pushing a car, it's like, what's, what's available? Yeah. You're flipping lemons on a Tuesday. Like, dude, talk about sales. Well, and, and lemons, you know, you weren't flipping those in 19. 19- 35 in Brooklyn because they were all in Florida. That's so true. And getting them up here wasn't easy. But anyway, he did that. um, And uh, he, like I said, he he read voraciously. Everybody in my family was pretty much a reader. Mm -hmm. Um, One of my uncles became a higher up in the um, transit police authority. He had like 1,500 men working for him. Sheesh. You know, he, he, he was pretty up there. I had an, another uncle. The whole family worked to put my youngest uncle through college at the City College in New York, and he eventually became a civil, civil engineer and, as you can imagine, did quite well for himself. Right. Um, was he the first to go to college? He's the only one to go to college in that family. Got it. Um, you know, everybody else was working for a living. My dad um, did what a lot of people did back then. He started taking civil service exams. And he would do very well on them without the education because he read constantly and he was intelligent. And um, he started out, I believe, as a motorman in the the subway system, became a conductor and worked himself up until he was middle management supervisory kind of level. Got it. About when I was um, at that point, you know, we were living your classic pretty healthy middle middle class lifestyle um we we did not have tons of money but it was a different time and it was a different era so my parents had a home and then they um eventually bought a second home uh for vacationing in connecticut and then they decided okay well we want to get our kids out of the city 
Um, my brother was already getting into a little bit of hot water with things. It wasn't cool. Um, so he moved us to this house that we had, which was basically a winterized summer cottage. And he stayed in the city in a one-room studio flat in someone's basement uh, for the next 10 years or so. He would come home only on weekends. That was the only time I saw my father at that point. Was, uh, was Grandma working at that point? She started working. All the... No, she started working. So she he stayed to. in the city to keep things moving while she started to figure things out and everybody got acclimated in the move. She, he stayed in the city because he made pretty good money. Ten years? Uh, yes, but he was already in yeah. a while. Sure. He, and he was working toward a pretty nice pension, retirement benefit. And the big thing was if he moved to Connecticut and stayed here, there was a very good chance he was going to take a substantial cut in pay and end up in a factory somewhere, which would have killed my father. The idea of my dad standing in front of a machine, hitting a stamping lever 5,000 times in a day, I think that was terrifying for him. As a shit, I mean, I, I you know? think, yeah. So he worked the night shift. He would work through Thursday night to Friday morning, and then he either took a train or he drove. He, he did both over the years to come home. He'd go into go to sleep in my sister's bedroom um, while we were at school. We would get home. We invariably woke him up when he had way too little sleep. And then, you know, he would, for the weekend, set about um, sort of terrorizing all of us to get the house in order because my mom was not coping well. Um, with him, with his lack of presence? Yes. Got it. Um, she was resentful of the fact that he didn't come home. Keep in mind. Did she uh, get why though? Or was oh, there a, a lack of, con- it was an agreement. So, okay. So it was, it was just a byproduct of the, of the plan of action. Yeah. I Got mean, it. it was something they agreed to, but still I, tough though, but she wanted him she- to come home and he would look at her. I could imagine the argument. Um, I, I'm sure it boiled down to something like we've had this discussion. None of the circumstances have changed. Mm-hmm. Why would I be changing what I'm doing? Right. And, you know, it was that sort of inescapable logic. It was right the first thousand times we had the conversation and you agreed to it. So, you know, I'm sure he didn't put it this way, but suck it up, buttercup. This is what we set up. Right. It was very hard on the kids. It was very hard on my mom. It was weird for us. It was a time when divorce was very rare. And if you did have parents who were divorced, you were da da da. The yeah, it was heavily of a broken fr- home. Yeah, it was heavily. It was like not going to college. Like it meant you. You were yeah. Like it was, it was something was broken. Yeah, something which was. Is, you were literally the product of a broken home. Was the way it was described. So I was constantly having to explain to people, no, um, my parents are not divorced. Um, I am not the product of a broken home. This is how my father earns his living. Right. Interesting. The, my senior year of high school, um, he retired from that job at Christmas time and came <laughs> home. Interestingly enough. Um, yeah, since he was born on, on Christmas, Christmas Day. Day. Yeah. yeah. Smart um, man. Yeah. All right, guys, thanks for the cash. I'm out of here. Yeah. So, um, and then, you know, my father was a pretty smart guy. He, he knocked around a couple of different jobs for a while, nothing that was really making him any real money or, or making him particularly happy. And then he did what he had always done. He started taking civil service exams, did well enough, and got into the motor vehicle in, uh, in Connecticut and, again, kind of worked his way through into um, – I mean, he was still just a motor vehicle department worker, but he was one of the more advanced ones. And he did that for another 10 or 15 years. So when he died, he was getting two separate pensions plus Social Security. Right. He was doing fine. Right. Um, Meanwhile, um, you know, my mom had tried to raise us uh, with mixed, mixed results. Um, and, uh, you know, my, you know, already my, my brother was a drug addict. Mm-hmm. Uh, my older sister was a hellion. My twin sister was a hellion. Um, and I was this weird guy who read a lot and did well in school. Right. 
And, you know, I didn't fit in. Which to all of my friends listening understand, it makes no sense why I can only read picture books. So. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> by the way, I would just like to say, not my goddamn yeah, it's fault. It's not his fault, guys. <laughs> I just can't sit still. This is the kid I tortured by reading the Lord, to the Lord of the Rings, the entire trilogy aloud. I think by the time we were done twice. <laughs> Dude, real though. You read. I mean, but that was helpful. I mean, but I think that's what helped. In uh, Ellie got the same gene, but I think I think our family is bred through storytelling. Mom, that's how mom makes a living. I mean, she yes. she tells captivating stories that establish grounds of of, of and truth relationships. and relationships. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but uh, real quick, I gotta I gotta pull this because it's so funny. When you can you just tell one of those stories of when you would have to go to the DMV and inevitably every single person listening to this has had the terrible experience of having to go to the DMV, spending way too much time to get way too little done. So can you just help all of us understand the hack that Grandpa came up with to get you to the front of the lines? My my father was. Um very friendly with a lot of the dealers, auto dealers in New London. There are a ton of them in New London, Connecticut. And uh, when I graduated college, um, he got me a job working for one of them. They all kissed his ass because he would—he was a nice guy and he'd help them out. And, you know, they'd flood the house with bottles every Christmas, which were hysterical because he didn't drink any of them. Right, of and course. he'd end up giving them away and he'd finally <laughs> empty the liquor cabinet in yeah. time for the next Christmas. He re-gifted them? What a savage. Well, you know, he wasn't <laughs> going to waste them and he wasn't going to drink them. I know. So yeah, anyway, I'm, I'm working at this motor vehicle, um, or not the motor vehicle, I'm working at this dealership. It was a Toyota dealership. You were, you were selling cars at that point? I was selling cars. Awesome. I did that for four months. Um, and I started to get pretty good at it, which is an ugly thought because it was an ugly dealership. They did a lot of shady stuff. Yeah. But what would happen is they would know that I was going, by the way, the dealership, um, dealers in Connecticut can actually issue registrations and stuff. If they're in good standing, the dealership I was working for had that privilege pulled. <laughs> so all Jesus. their salespeople, when they were selling a car, had to go to the DMV to get the car registered for the customer so they could deliver it. Well, whenever I needed to go and often when I didn't, they would talk me into bringing their stuff in. My father would see me at the door and suddenly I'd hear, God damn it. How long do you take to get here? Get over here right now. And he'd be screaming at me to beat the band like I was in so much trouble. And everybody would part like the Red Sea. Everybody would get the hell out of the way. They did not want to be associated with this young guy getting yelled at by the DMV examiner. And I'd get up there. My father would be snickering like hell. And he would do all the paperwork. And then he'd hand it back to me. I'd have the plates or whatever else I was picking up. And he'd look at me. Now get the hell out of here and don't come back. And I'd walk out. And everybody in the DMV knew me and knew exactly what my father was doing. It was funny as hell. But it was great because everybody was in line for an hour and a half waiting to get their first time to talk to someone and i was out within 10 or 15 minutes i love it it was priceless he is so it's so funny because it's just like completely dismissing any level of like social grounds yeah it was just like all right like uh, what are we gonna do here you're not gonna wait all day jimmy get the hell up here it's uh, you know he never let on to the patrons that we were related. They, right. They thought you were actually getting disciplined. I was. I was in trouble and getting called out in front of everybody. So he sold I'd, it well. Oh God, yeah. And and it it was priceless. And uh, I'd walk out and there'd be these pitying looks, like, "Oh, you poor young son of a bitch." Right. And, you know. Uh, but this is the same guy. Now you remember your grandmother. My your grandmother was um, about the size of an overweight stick. Yeah. You know, there, she was th- skin and bone. She was the human size of the wooden spoon she yeah, used. Yeah, she, she, was, she was thin like you wouldn't believe. She had, he had everyone, when he first started there, convinced that his wife, whose name was Alice, no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. <laughs> was really fat. And they kept saying, well, show us some photos. We don't believe you. He's looking at him and he's going, how am I going to fit her in a picture she doesn't fit i don't have any pictures of her it she's fat alice meanwhile skinny goldie which is what her real name exactly she's like 90 pounds soaking wet yeah you know um but he sold it like you said and they all bought into it it was funny as hell he He managed to send um 
my older sister to nursing school. Mm-hmm. Um, my brother, they tried to get to go to college, but he blew it off and they had to give that up. Right. My twin sister, they put through a hairdressing school because that was all she would tolerate. And he managed to put me through a good four-year education at a private college. Um, I got a lot of financial aid, uh, a lot of it need-based. You also and, worked for it, though. You wrote a lot. You you showed up to get to the game to play. Like, uh, you didn't just have a handout. I no, I, I didn't. I mean, I, I had uh, various jobs working in the in the um, university at the college rather um, as a work study student. Um, I took out loans. Um, and, and, you know, paid some of my way. That's, that's part of why when you and your brother were coming through, I, I said you had to take out some loans. I didn't want you to take a lot because I didn't want you saddled with so well, much debt you couldn't manage but, it. But that was, that was part of where, like, we had a real conversation around, like, this isn't monopoly money and you have skin in the game. And so when you make a decision here, like, to me, oh, you want to go to D.C.? Super cool, dude. Now let's look at the numbers. And right. we had, and I think that that's something that, and if we have time for a bit, if we have time to dive into it, um, I, I do want to talk a little bit about that because I think there's, a, I mean, financial, liter- like, like we talked about that earlier this weekend, we're like, right. there's so many pieces of, I'll call it infrastructure that can support the, the lack of financial literacy. And I don't think that we talked about money a lot at home, but when it came to making decisions, uh, like, like college, it wasn't like, Hey, let's just make whatever makes you happy. And it's like, yeah, what makes you happy, but also like there's a result at the end of that that has nothing to do with your grades that is still going to be there whether you like the experience or not. Yeah, and and that was not a result, a consequence, whatever you want to call it. No, it, and you're absolutely correct. And that was a big part of how my father raised me because my father, I came from a family that, um, you know, was classic tight Italian. If a kid wanted or needed something, by God, he got it. Somehow he got it. My father, I cannot tell you how many times this uneducated non-high school graduate looked at me and said, I am your father. I will take care of all of your needs. And he absolutely meant it. Right. But when I was a kid and I was pointing at things I wanted, as kids are likely to do, his response was, sure, you can have it. Save up half the money. I'll give you the other half. And that's something I, I can, I think that, there, I mean, there, there's no silver bullet to parenting and I don't have kids, so like I can't relate, but like that was something that I think always worked equi- equitably. Like you're like, yeah, like that's fine. I'm not going to write a, I'm not going to write a blank check for you, but if you want to co, 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 co produce this result, let's roll. Well, let's, and, and, and then and, because, because as a kid, it's like, if you feel you can't come up with half, it provides context to the full picture. Yeah, and it and it creates a sense of, of responsibility and a, a sense of shared community. Um, I was working by the time I was fourteen years old. I wasn't working like in a job somewhere, but I was. You know, I, I would get jobs uh, caring for neighbors' pets. I would mow the lawns, General, and rake the leaves. Productivity was something that's more spoke about in, in your generation than I feel like our youth. Our youth is more based on entertainment and, and things that make you happy and fun and playful, which has merit because creativity matters in a world where we lack engineers in this country. Like we need people that view the world as, as, the, as them as an architect and somebody that, that can help and create and, and play a part. But like... Yeah, like I, I remember going to lunch. Like, I mean, you guys would, when the mom would pack a lunch or whatever, like I would sell stuff and go buy cookies. Like there was like, and it wasn't because there was like no money. It was just because like, if I asked every single day, you'd at some point be like, hey, Jer, that $1.50 four days a week adds up. Yeah. And I was like, all right, well, like if she's going to give me an apple, I can, it's Halloween. What can I, ah, shit, I'll carve this thing up, call it an apple lantern, flip it for a buck. Cause some dumb kid is a parent with a lot of money. And screw it. I'll get and my cookies. They'll get something hilarious and everybody's equitable. And a lot of money and no idea about the need to suspend, to uh, sustain still thoughtful discipline in kids. Right. They're just used to their beach house. You had to, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have to, kids have to understand what the value of labor is. For sure. And you don't know that until you know the value of money. And you don't know that until you have to uh, work to actually get something you want. It's super funny you say Because I remember, when, I mean, like we, I don't even think we did allowances. There were just expectations. If you lived in this house, you, like, like, I, like we were talking about this earlier, like sweeping the floor. Like we used to get in crazy fights because I'd be like, it's good. And you're like, no, it's not. Like it, like good enough doesn't apply when the standard is getting it done. 
And like, you know what I mean? Like when the standard is completing the task, finishing at 80% is still a fail. Like, like I think that there's, there's a level of understanding of like, there are certain tasks that are binary. And so like, I remember so vividly, uh, was it sweeping the living room or something? You, you asked me to sweep the first floor of the house and I did it like an idiot where I would start in the middle and like, or I, I just wasn't thinking about the perimeter and working my way in. I was just sweeping like an idiot nine-year-old. And, uh, you would just say like, you start over basically. And I was like, why? And I never understood it. And now I come, I mean, I got it then, but like it took a while. And then I started from the corners. I was like, Oh, like he's not being a dick. Like he genuinely is like, you're working slow and you're not working smart. Like you have to think about the bigger picture or you're wasting time and you're not getting the job done. Right. Right. And it was stuff like that, that, and it was also part of something my father instilled in me. He would he he said to me very often and and again from a pretty early age mm-hmm. anything you do in the world you're signing your name to For sure. you better be glad your name's on it because it's going to be whether you like it or not 100% and um you know when when you hear and, and you know his other mantra was many hands make light work my family, we hated that because we knew that meant we were everybody's about to get getting up on Sunday some, to work. <laughs> yeah, we knew that that meant we were doing chores. And the the hard thing about it was that you couldn't really legitimately argue because there was nothing he was asking you to do that he wasn't there, there pitching in doing with you. I I completely agree. Uh, he well, and it's funny because, um. The, those, those, those mantras, whatever you want to call it, many hands make light work, measure twice, cut once, like all of those general preambles of like, they're just sound logic. It's not even like there's no thesis on it. It's like do things in a group of people. And if there's common goals, there's likely to be greater success. Yeah. And it's like, it's simple stuff like that, but, but it's, I just find a lot of that stuff interesting. And so, um, to fast forward, because I do want to chop up a couple things just because of like just sure. wrapping up like the fact that you retired 32, 32 years, edu- right? 32 years. Jesus. And here I was thinking I couldn't make it through high school. 32 years. So you've been to 32 proms? 33, technically. Um, well, uh, not quite because All right, a, so you- I spent 10 years as an English teacher. Right. And being an English teacher is such an overwhelming task in terms of time commitment to planning lessons and grading papers that the the concession i made was that i got in almost no real involvement in the in the school communities where i worked got it i did my work i brought tons of it home i worked nonstop, but i always left early or comparatively early um late Actually, late by a lot of standards. Like school got school got out at three. You'd leave at four thirty to get home to put some dinner on the table with the exactly. family, so you could contribute, yeah. and then you'd punch back in and get to work until bed. Yeah, and and bed sometimes was six o'clock the next morning. Right. Uh, I did probably five to eight all nighters a year for a long time. So I I want I I think that this space. I mean, teachers are getting more of a a light right now. I think. Well, I, th- I think <clears throat> generally speaking, everybody's a publisher. I mean, anybody with an internet connection can speak their opinion and, and voice it, and anybody that can also connect to the internet can agree or disagree. And so I think naturally, there's more virality to the conversation of teachers and pay and. Um, for the teachers coming into right, so because you just just to set the framework for the people listening. 10 years as a teacher, more or less the same as, as an administrator, as a vice principal. Well, uh, 15 years as a assistant principal. Okay. 15 years. And then the rest of the time I was a district level, um, writing curriculum, correct? writing curriculum, ma- managing curriculum. Got it. In, uh, social studies, mm-hmm. art and music. Got it. And also evaluating 25 teachers a year and running summer school. Okay. So, so I was for, busy. First, yeah, first of all, a lot of stuff. Second of all, that's where I get my music from, so the mixtape will be out soon. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's but, screamo. Yeah, exactly. It's just me on a podcast. I, I actually joked around with, I don't remember who I was talking to, and I was like, dude, if I just dropped an actual, like, like a rap, like a song, like, there's enough people that listen where I'd get a response, but not enough people that would respond that would make it a problem. Yeah. And I was like, that would be very, like, I mean, like, like you know, what's a couple thousand, but... 
The uh, so 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 really, what I'm kind of getting at is, you've spent enough time in the classroom, in front of kids, on the front lines. You're the infantry, right? Then you've stepped into more of a, a leadership role, whatever Very you want to look so. at it as. And then, from an architect's perspective, you're actually designing what is being taught and developing the practitioners. And so, yep. when we look at teachers right now, you know, my ignorant state of uh, uh, on this affair is, is kind of interesting because I think there are some people that wake up and love it and, and they, 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 they get off to the process of community and giving back and developing the next generation. And I think there are some people that genuinely know that they want to be a teacher. Maybe they don't know the, the coursework. They don't know the level, but like they go to school saying, I want to do elementary ed or I want to be a teacher. And they truly in their heart of hearts mean it. Yeah. I do think that there are also a ton of people that wanted to be engineers suck shit at physics and ended up being math teachers. I think, I, I think there's some truth to that. I think there's a, a, there's a greater likelihood um, with that class of employee, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Those are the people that just wanted the summers off Bingo. and thought that would be cool. And, yeah, and so. you know, that it is true that most in most places you get a, a good long summer vacation. That is real. Right. But there's enough work if you're going to do the job properly that that's less about having an easy lifestyle and more about having at least some downtime to catch your breath before the next onslaught because right. that's what it is. Right. The, the wonderful thing about being a teacher is that you get to start over every year. And if you care, you can correct the things that need correcting. You can build on the strengths that you can offer. Um, you can learn. You can share. I mean, there's, there's a tremendous amount of Benny to it. The downside is we, we live in a very challenging environment. And there's a lot of stuff happening now um, which simply didn't exist. I mean, you know, the, the way I used to talk about it, when I was coming up through the ranks as a teenager uh, learning about sex and stuff, the biggest thing that might happen to me if I messed with the wrong girl was that I might get syphilis or gonorrhea, which everybody called the clap, Right, and you'd go to a doctor and you'd get a bunch of antibiotics and, you know, a few weeks later you're fine, except that every time your friends saw you, you'd hear, and right, that was their get, way of... get trolled a little bit. Yeah. Now, the biggest problem is you're going to die. Right. That does kind of raise the ante a lot in a big way. And to what your, your, the example is speaking to is there's a game of extremism within the educational community. And it's so... The whole society. True. Well, this, it, it's, a, it's society, a polarized society. Yeah, I mean, this, it, and, and it's not just polarized, but it's high risk. It is. There are things that, that you dealt with as a teenager mm -hmm. that were high risk for you that did not literally exist when I was a teenager. Right. That's I fair. didn't have to worry about it because it, it wasn't a thing. Right. When I think, so I, I because it, I mean, I, I lived in a household. I, I, I saw firsthand, despite my, my jaded perspective, just being a kid, not having the full scope of like what's going on. But, but like, I, I saw the hours, like this wasn't, you know, I saw in our house and just being trained, like, I remember when the kitchen evolved from us hanging shit on cork boards to us having cabinets and like things evolving a little bit. You know what I mean? I remember those years of gradual transition of like, oh shit, this is a little different and not understanding what's happening, but understanding like these two, I, I this is something I, I go off on and I think... I wish I was smart enough to write this book, but I do believe that we look at parents as characters, not as people. And that's why it's such a, it's kind of a mind fuck, pardon the language, but it's kind of a mind fuck when you get to like 22 to 26, because you're like, oh, they're not really, like in Family Guy, Meg wears that hat every single episode on repeat. She's a character. There's sustainability, predictability, and expectations that are always met regardless of any day of the week. That show, that character is what you expect it to be. Mom and dad tend to be that way for a lot of people. Whether they go to work, they come back, they work, their involvement in dinners and sports and whatever their involvement in your life is, there's an expectation because parents have to oftentimes develop routines to sustain all the shit they have to manage. But like, then you break into like, oh, this thing, you start noticing things are changing. And I remember that, like the kid, oh, the kitchen, that's different. But like these, these two people are still like the same people. Like right. you start to see environments shifting, but the people are still more or less in my mind on the treadmill. Cause I don't know the work you're doing. Like, I don't know ninth grade teaching from you now being an advice principal because I'm nine. I don't really know what's going on. And so, but for the new teachers to the new teachers that are jumping into the role, 
I don't really care if they're jacked up. Like there are a couple friends that I, I, I graduated with because of the state of like what I studied. And obviously, you know, that. I mean, I spent a lot of time doing stuff outside of school, just selling stuff and messing around. But, yeah. but I, did, I did connect with a lot of people that did, you know, early education, things like that. What don't teachers know that's not like job interviews. Like, like I can't explain how many times people are like, we're looking for a marketing person. And if they really wrote the accurate job description, it says door-to-door sales. I want a canvasser. Like, no, you want a sales rep. What aren't educational like communities? What are they not add? What are they not communicating to new teachers that needs to be communicated? I don't think anyone fully understands how difficult it is and how varied the demands are when they start teaching. There's a reason half to two-thirds of all new teachers leave the business within their first two to three years of getting into the business. Which is brutal. Yeah. There's a huge attrition rate. Now, some yeah, of that... Two to three years? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. So, so our states and our localities, our governments are spending a ton of money just training teachers because they can't keep them long enough to Often drive, a re- drive a return on the investment of actually getting them acclimated into the district. Yeah. Jesus. Okay, keep, there, keep rolling. And, no, and there's been, just as a side note, there's mm-hmm. been a real push um, in some states and in some communities to develop better ways to induct teachers into the profession. Um, when I was coming up, induction into the tradition into the profession meant you had some older teacher who took you under his or her wing, slapped you around when you needed it, gave you materials and told you how to use them when they were helpful, and basically, you know, it was a mentoring thing, but there was nothing formal about it. You were just either lucky enough to have someone like that or you weren't. Right. Now there tend to be formal mechanisms. There's a lot of work that There's goes into A lot of bureaucracy. Yes. And, and that, is, that has its upsides and it has its downsides. You know, I've talked to teachers in our induction programs where I worked who were very happy to hear about some of the stuff they were learning, but sometimes they were like, it's another meeting. Right. Or it could have been an email. You know, uh, they were... That's how I were, feel about 90% of meetings. I'm like, dude, we could have done this in five minutes. Yeah. Uh, send me send me a memo. You know? Right. But of course, a lot of teachers don't read their memos. So. Right. Well, because most of the memos are nonsense. Yeah, but, the, but the biggest thing is... <laughs> But they don't know what they're getting into. Is, is they, the, they, nobody sells teachers as like, this is going to be the hardest thing you're going to do ever. But if you're in it for the right reasons, you will feel fulfillment unlike any check that you'll ever receive. Absolutely. So, and, yeah. And the same thing is true, by the way, for school administrators. School administration is one of the hardest things on the planet. Contextualize administration for like, I lived in the house, but like, what's that mean for most people? Um. I'm talking right now about the principals and the assistant principals um, for the most part. You're talking about people who, I mean, here's some of my portfolio from when I was an assistant principal. I was responsible for all grades, grading, and record keeping associated with that. Transcripts, everything. How many students? Um, in this, in- there were 1,200 in one building. There were uh, 1,100 or 1,050 in another. You know, depended on which. Those are large, but those are large schools, though. Um, there, by some standards, they're not. Mm-hmm. Frankly, because there are so- schools out there where it's 3,000 kids in a building. Fair. Where the you know the senior class is 1,500 kids when yeah, they that's, graduate. That's valid. But um, it's enough to be pretty busy. I you know I'm the guy who brought. Uh, computerized grading into my school system I did I I I wrote the manuals for the teachers because there was nothing useful that they could have to reference so I literally created this stuff um, I was also responsible for making sure the toilets worked that the rooms were clean that the heat was on that there was water in the system yeah you're just you're you're the you're I managed yeah. the Jeez. substitutes and the uh, disciplinary. Oh, tremendous amounts of disciplinary stuff. But to like, to, but to I was like a, I was like a, a state cop investigator. Right. And that's the challenging part is like, it's in, it, there's just, you're, you're, there's so many hats where like you're disciplining kids while managing the grades, while managing the actual infrastructure of the building to make sure it's operational, it's safe, it's up to code. And you're managing the, like, it's just, 
I think, and that's like, I find that to be common across a lot of spaces. I'm not well versed enough to actually place my opinion, but will anyway, because why not? <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's one of those things where like, we're understaffed. Oh. And, and like, it's that simple. And so when you look at it, it's like, oh, our teachers are turning over. Is it because they're not happy and it's not the right thing that makes them tick? Or is it because it's so understaffed that they have 29 kids in that class and they can't manage all of it because it's so many kids. There are thirty kids, or like I don't know what the I don't I don't know the the studies behind it. Um, and for the sake of time, it'd be a lot to dive into. But but the principle is like there's there's just so much a lot to do. I mean, here's just an example. Um, studies have shown that the the kind of middle level management that shows you what school administrators are typically has maybe six direct reports. Sorry, are you talking corporate? Yeah. Got it. Okay, six direct reports. I had 25. Yeah. Um, well, and, and so it's interesting because if, like, in a sales world, 80% of your quota fulfillment will come from 20% of your reps. And so when you look at it, it's, it's, it's an... I love sales because contextually, it brings performance into a scope that's, not in, that's unlike any other profession. Because it's binary. Did you sell it or did you not? And when you know 80% of the productivity is coming from 20% of the reps, if you have 25 teachers with the same mentality, which obviously is not calculated as with a lot of qualitative results. I mean, you can look at average grades and, and average graduation rates or things of that. There's a lot of quants that you can bring to the frame, but it's hard to like put in a frame like, oh, we have 25 people. Realistically, if 20% of them produce 80% of our upside, like, oh, wow, our school is going down the shitter. Like you can't have, like you can't have, you can't get by with that as a leader. No. And unlike other professions where as an exec in a corporate environment, if 20% of your reps carry 80% of your number, you're still putting up your couple million or a couple hundred grand or a couple hundred million, depending on the business you sell, you get by, everybody gets their bonus. And those six to, you know, those, those, those 80% of other reps, well, you recycle them through until they start to figure out the job. They, they either get better or they produce a, a bare minimum. And that is to some extent true of teachers too. There are lots of teachers that are basically competent, but are never going to light any fires under anybody. Right. But they're not doing any harm. The challenge is though, the, the consequence of me not selling a deal is letting down my boss, my team, my boss's boss, my commission check, my bank accounts filled with dents because I'm not filling it with commission. Like there's a lot of things that go wrong, but when a teacher sucks, those 25 kids just got set back. And in a globalized workforce, like that's where like, there's a lot of pressure. And when you sell a teacher a job based on a three month vacation and saying, hey, you're gonna, you're gonna teach Tom Sawyer and you know, to kill a mockingbird and whatever, and you know, like whatever you're doing. Good choices, by the way. Thank you. Trying to pull them out. <laughs> um, aren't, isn't, isn't, no, to kill a mockingbird didn't get banned, right? It has, there were attempts to ban it, and, and there were places where it got banned. Which is crazy. Um, and, and, you know, a complete side note one of the things that I find interesting about it is that it is still banned. It was originally banned because it showed white people in a negative light. And, um, and, and folks didn't want to acknowledge that now it's banned because it's honest enough to use words that are considered unacceptable now. And, you know, I, I, they don't want a, a black kid seeing the word nigger. I'm sorry. It's a foul word. It is nothing I believe in, but it is historically what was happening. Right. And if you want to tell a story and you want people from around the world to learn from that story, you better bloody well tell it the way it was. It's like, well, yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, yeah, I, I think that there's a lack of context. You can't like they're, they're um, so something that, I mean, it's on every po political station known to man, but, but it's, uh, you know, there are people that are going to go to that that are going to be sent out to fight that weren't even alive during during uh, the 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 during nine eleven, and there's certain things like that that without the proper context we lose the history behind it. Um, well, it, it's it, the old line about those who don't remember history are destined to repeat it. Yeah, I absolutely. We're going through that now. Right. No, it's it and, and it's, it, but it's it's and to kind of to bring it out, I can't. I kind of hate that you have to run to the airport because we're like just getting into some fun stuff. Uh, but we do have to get off in a couple minutes. Um, 
But I think I think it is very challenging that we're so understaffed in the educational community that we're afraid to sell the proper set of like it's like I always whenever I talk about like like hiring and stuff, I'm always like you know don't sell a bag of goods. Like your if your turnover sucks, I blame your interview process. Yeah, you know, just for the record, I'm not sure I totally agree with your thesis. I don't think anybody who is trying to hire teachers is are deliberately i mean so i'm sure some are especially if they're in rough environments of course but i don't think for the most part that they are deliberately trying to hide anything or just or throw out any shiny objects like summers off to distract them right i think some people make stupid choices based on superficial values mm-hmm. and i think the real thing is for good bad or indifferent it is simply a complex enough affair. We're talking about the development of human character and thinking. That's not, that's not ever going to be simple. It is a complex enough endeavor so that no one ever really knows what they're getting into until they're doing it. Right. And there's always, I believe, going to be a little more of a turnover in an environment like that than it might be in others. And I don't think that that's necessarily bad. I've, I've counseled teachers out of the profession where I was doing them a favor because they were unhappy with what they were doing. Right. It wasn't a good fit for them. It didn't mean they were bad people. It didn't mean they were foolish or stupid or lazy. It meant it wasn't for them. And better to find that out when you're younger than rather than when you're older. So I don't, I don't think it's... I don't think things are misrepresented. I just think it's hard to really understand it until you get into it. I do think sometimes that there isn't the proper support. And I do think that sometimes people present things in an overly, you know, those rose colored glasses don't really work in in a classroom. No, you have to know what you're getting into. Right. Um, And you can't until you do it. So you got to learn from it while you're there. I also find teaching interesting, and, and, and to, to agree with you, I don't think that most people are selling a bag of goods. I think that there is a challenge in branding something that has a long-term return on in its investment. I can sell a deal and get paid next month. You know, it's hard to get, input all this blood, sweat, tears, and, and emotion into a, a, a child's ability to re- learn, and then they jump onto the next grade. You may never see them again. But but I will say, the one, excuse me, the one thing about teaching that I am I'm obsessed with is it's one of the few industries that everybody will actively be able to check your work. Like if your t- kids can't read and they go to the next grade, everybody it's not like it's like Tommy can't read. It, you know, it's, <laughs> you can't fake that. No, and and it's an interesting thing because there there's two edges to that. One is there can be a very legitimate, necessary kind of accountability with that. Mm-hmm. The flip side is because almost everyone's gone to a school, almost everybody thinks they know how to run one. Yep. And let me tell you, I have bought a lot of stuff from corporations. I ain't qualified to run those corporations. And I know that. Super valid. Um, and, and so you get, you know, there's been a, a push from the business world into education. And some of that push is really needed. We're just now in the last 20 years or so developing capacity to do data-driven decision-making, which is what you do every time you look at someone's sales quotient and whether they made it or not. For sure. It's a data-driven decision. We set a goal. We identify the goal. We we tell people what to do and how to get there. And then we watch and see if they're actually making it. Right, we, map the we only just there. started doing this in education very comparatively recently, and we do it without any of the tools. The model that exists in most education environments that I've been in is now what I describe as a medical model. We take, we, we do a diagnostic, we take the temperature and the vital signs of the learner, we figure out what's going well, and we figure out what we need to improve and then we do a prescription. Nowadays, they call it a lesson plan. Right. And w- then we check the work and we see if it went well. And if it didn't, we come up with a new prescription. But I don't have any x-ray technologists. Is it, is, so it, I don't have any orderlies. I don't have any nurses. I don't have any PAs. The infrastructure that makes a medical system work nowadays does not exist. 
but the demand for that kind of assessment does. Right. Is, and that's difficult. Is that so? So for new teachers, is that how they should look at their lesson plans? Rather, rather than it being a set of to dos and a checklist, it should be looked at as a prescription to get to a better result for the quote unquote patient. It's like, okay, today's we're, what goal are we looking to accomplish, and then you reverse engineer it to work backwards. Yeah, what, one of, there's two things. One, you start with a curriculum that tells you what kids need to be able to know, understand, and do. Is that what the basis of curriculum is? I mean, I know it's like a dumb question, but I no, look, it's not a dumb but question I look at, that at all. And, and I look at it, I'm like, how the hell is, is the difference between fourth and fifth grade? Like for me, I'm like, I don't like. Well, that and that's where the subject area and educational experts are supposed to be able to identify that. That's the part that separates the educator from the guy who went to school and therefore thinks he can run it. Got it. How do we benchmark that? Oh, damn, I really wish we didn't have to jump off. How do we benchmark that? Is that a globalized thing where we look at, this is what, like, for example, as a business person, super competitive. And so when I look at it, I'm like, okay, the number one player in the game, like if I'm talking about engineering, I'm like, okay, the number one players in the game, China. What, what, like, where, how, what can X, Y, and Z do? And I'm not saying they have the best engineers. I'm saying just the volume of execution is 10 to one. I mean, hundred to one. So like, where do we benchmark? Okay, by fifth grade or by nine years old, our kids need to be proficient or excelling in these. How do we? There's various things. Um, there's something called the NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which is administered in this country every year to a variety of students. That tells, uh, that gives a good metric about where kids are. And then that can be uh, compared to international um, competitors or, or peers, however you want to put it. Yeah, however you want to look at you, it. You know, um, we know, for example, that Orientals tend to teach math much more effectively. They get a much better job out of it. And one of the reasons they do it is they, they do far less at any given time, and they do it way more deeply. They practice it way more. So I might cover a quarter of the content or a half of the content in a year in fifth grade in China or, or Japan that I do in the United States. But when I walk out, I'm going to know it cold. Whereas Interesting. everything is pretty superficial in the United States. And there's, there's pushes to make these changes. That, you know, there's recognition of this stuff. Going back to what you were saying before, the teacher's job is to understand the curriculum, understand the kids, and to be able to prescribe, as I said, what, what do we do next? First thing you do is what's called nowadays, they call it formative assessment, which is I'm going to take your educational temperature on this topic and find out what you know. And if you already know a lot, and you were, you were a victim of this growing up, there were times where you were in classes and you were bored stiff because the teacher was teaching to some irrelevant middle that probably barely existed in the classroom, True. and you were way ahead of it and was doing nothing for you. And you were bored yeah. stiff. Those are the, it, it, I can't I tell you. I always struggled in, those, in class anyway just because I couldn't sit there and listen to like these drawn out like, ugh. Well, and, and that's, I mean, kidding aside, that's part of why you didn't like to read. You yeah. didn't have the patience for it. And you were fortunate. You had teachers that, in, in some cases, you were fortunate. You had teachers that uh, would, would sort of work with you on that. I, I, I'll never forget Roy Parker oh, the best. calling you thumper <laughs> because you'd constantly be drumming on your desk. Yes. And he'd tell you to stop. And you'd stop because you were a well-behaved kid. I also respected him because he was our coach and I like knew him beyond the textbook. And I think that's a challenging metric for a lot of students to quantify is like they only know their like like they like they it's it's they just don't know anything about that person. It's a, again, it goes back to that same thought of people are characters when you have no context. Because they show up to teach, they're in the front of the room, their location, their placement, their general attire, everything about them is the same every day. And you don't know them outside of that until you're you know, my 25 and you're like, Oh shit, he's a great guy. Yeah. I, but, but really talk, I talk about that story all the time because it, dude, I was in a meeting. You'll, you'll laugh so hard at this. Everybody listening and don't do this. Learn from my mistake. I looked like an asshole. I was in the middle of a meeting. We ended up getting the deal. So it all worked out. I was clicking my pen 
This was a proposal. So we were pay, we were proposing a seventy thousand dollar deal for this guy, and uh, great guy, super funny. And I was click, I was just you, like I do. I just I'm a drummer. Shit, like I I can't sit still in these stupid long meetings, man. Like let's get to the point. And uh, the guy stops talking, and he's like, "Let me see your pen." And he, I'm like, "Here you go." He takes the pen, he puts it in the middle of the table. He says, "Thank you," and then proceeds with the the, the meeting. And I was so embarrassed. And like, I left there like, oh my God, like what a, what an immature green, what a, what a ridiculous move on my part as a sales professional. I was so pissed at myself, but it was one of those things like I still, and then I joked around with him. I'm like, dude, I'm, it's, I'm working at it. Like to say the least, like I grew up in a jam band household. I've been drubbing my whole life. My seventh grade is, you know, eighth grade English teacher, social studies teacher used to call me thumper. Like, dude, this is DNA. Thank you for doing that because it made me feel like an asshole and I'll, that helps me address the problem. <laughs> but, yeah. And you know, but think like, about how things went. There were teachers like Roy Parker and there were others who you would get up and just walk around the classroom and you weren't ignoring class. I was you doing better because I was not I was, aware of what was going on. You just couldn't sit still. They'd ask you a question. You'd have the answer right there and that. Right. When they realized that you weren't blowing off class and you weren't disrupting things, they let you wander. Dude, it's I, what you needed to do. You couldn't sit still. Dude, it, it, there it, are too yeah. many teachers that think kids are, are machine parts to be stamped. 100%. They're not. Well, and, and what I always looked at, it was like, dude, if you don't shake the mouse, the computer's going to fall asleep. Like, dude, I got to move. I gotta move. Like, what are we talking about? I'm staring at like these classes are crazy, but, but um, here, unfortunately, we do need to wind down. We got to get back and, and we got to get swing through Reagan and get you on the flight. We got plenty of time, but um, I I like that we were able to dive into the teacher side. I hope that when next time I'm in, I'm up in Connecticut, we can we can continue. I just think there's a lot, um, but but for teachers that I don't know, maybe they're in the maybe they just maybe they're entering year two. Like, like those teachers that just graduated in 2016, they did a little bit of pre-work, started to get integrated into the schools. They just had their first full year and they're entering the second year. What are some things that we can close on for them to make it a better year emotionally, productivity-wise, just, just as a whole? Because it is a very challenging year to walk into. I'll, I'll give you a couple of quick pointers. One thing I tell teachers all the time, I ask them, do you go home and have a gourmet dinner for meal every, uh, meal for dinner every night? And, of course, the response is laughter. Right. And I said, well, let me ask you this. Did you grow up in a family where, you know, usually maybe on a Sunday there was at least one family meal that was really nice where everybody got together and had a good meal together? And they'd say, yeah. And I'd say, good. I want you to plan one gourmet lesson every week. And I want you to make careful notes about what works and what doesn't. And I want you to work it the next year and create a new set of gourmet lessons once a week. Right. You're not always going to knock out five days of school and be, be the Gordon Ramsay of education. You know, like you're not always going to have that five-star you, dish. You can't, you can't be perfect all the time. So accept that. But don't accept slovenly work. I'm not saying not to plan lessons. I'm not saying um, that it's okay to be lazy. I'm saying it's okay to develop a methodical pattern of building on your strengths. So it's so funny. It's almost like comedy in that like sometimes you do have to write on stage. Yeah. It's like, look, you can have the bit that you know you're going to crush. Something you got to see what's going to work. Every one of them is not going to be a home run punchline. Yeah. Like, but get up in front of the class with an idea of something and, and make and sure that's, that. As a side note, that's one of the things I tell people. The lesson that was phenomenal with period two may very well bomb with periods three and four. Oh, that's so. Fuck. I wish we had more time because. And it, that just so means true. you have different kids. What? Well, and that's a big reason why understanding your audience is a whole other topic. But yeah. Anything else for, for closing remarks and then I'll wrap us up? Um, yeah. Um, develop your, your pattern of developing uh, or building gourmet lessons and don't sweat the small stuff. And the most important thing to remember, this was true for me at least, kids don't go to school saying, gee, how can I fuck up today? So Forgive sure. them. They're children. Forgive yourself. You're human.
be compassionate all the way around because that's what's going to get you through. I spent a lot of years working my ass off and not everything went well and not everything I did was good and not everything I did was clean and I know that there were some people I hurt in the process and I'm not happy with that. But I know I made lives better. I know that parents and teachers and kids look back and say to me or say to themselves about me, thank God he was there. That's where the money is. And it's not money, but it's where the reward is. Build toward that. It's different currency. Yeah. Well, I certainly hope that we have the time. And fortunately, we will because... If I don't come home, mom will kill me. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we'll, we'll pick this up and, and dive deeper. There's a lot of other stuff I want to talk about. I'm happy we were able to dive in. I think there's an interesting climate in education. Teachers clearly being underpaid. The infrastructure needing an upgrade. We're operating our educational system like it's Windows 6. And uh, we got to bump that baby up. So listen, thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Jeremy Franchese. We're joined with Frenchie, my pops. Uh, and uh, this is First Floor Conversations, where the view at the top is only as good as the foundation which preserves it. And uh, unless you're blind or not paying attention, the educational community is the foundation of the country, and, and we, we fundamentally have to pay attention and make some movement. So thanks so much for stopping by.